welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this podcast is not about training horses. Instead, we are learning how horse people can make a positive difference for the environment. The idea is a simple one. Our horses need pasture, so horse people have land. We need healthy pastures for our horses. Becoming better stewards of the land under our care becomes a win-win-win situation. It's good for our horses, which means it's good for us, and it also happens to be good for the planet. Individually, collectively, we can make a difference. That's a great concept. But how do we actually go about creating healthy, functional, biodiverse habitats on our land? Over the past year, I've been exploring this question through this Horses for Future podcast. One of the most hopeful answers I've found comes from the work of Dr. Doug Tallamy. He has launched, in his words, a grassroots call to action to restore biodiversity and ecosystem function by planting native plants and creating new ecological networks. Dr. Tallamy isn't looking at public lands. Instead, he is calling on private landowners to join what he calls the largest cooperative conservation project ever conceived or attempted. The goal is 20 million acres of native plantings in the U.S. Sound impossible? What I've learned from the horses is major change begins with small foundation steps. So if I combine the principles of training that I've learned from the horses with the principles of restoring ecosystem function that I'm learning from Dr. Tallamy, I'm confident that I can make a positive change for the land under my care. In this podcast, I'll be sharing how we go about this curious mix. I am joined in this discussion by Coralie Palmer. Coralie is a biologist. She's a director of the Indiana Wildlife Federation, and she's on the council of the Indiana Native Plant Society. So far, we have talked about several key elements that are needed to create what Dr. Tallamy refers to as homegrown national parks. Those elements are shrinking the lawn, planting natives, especially the keystone species, and removing invasive species. We ended the last episode with a tongue twister. We were learning how to say neonicotinoids. And this week, we're not only going to learn how to say this very long and very tongue twisty word, we're going to find out what it means. There's lots of other things, but one of the other main things when we're looking to buy is uh, neonicotinoid use. So we have to say that again more slowly because I struggle with it as well. It's like it's uh, it's like tr- learning to spell mycorrhizal fungi. That took me a while. So so let's say it slowly. Right. Yes. It's neonicotinoids. Um, so neonicotinoid use. And they are a class of um, insecticides that, and so we, we can talk in another episode again about, um, you know, first about chemical use when you've got your garden and you're managing it. But what can catch people unawares is sometimes when you're buying plants or seeds, they have already been treated with insecticides. And these neonicotinoid insecticides can be a real problem because they are they're what we call as their systemic insecticides. So they will spread through the entire plant. You know, they'll be present in the nectar and in the pollen. Visiting pollinating insects can be affected by them. And they or, and also because they're in the plant tissues and you know herbivorous insects um, also can be affected. You know, they were very popular when they first came in because they are often less dangerous to mammals and so us you know so this was seen as a, a good as a good thing but unfortunately that because they are um systemic and they're they and they can 
lost in the plant tissues for months um, and sometimes even a year or more um, within the plant tissues. And so there have been some good advances. There are a, a number of, of the big known stores have agreed to stop selling plants that have been treated with them, um, which is great news. But it's, um, what we advise people is it's always worth asking when you're buying plants or seeds partly so that you know you know so you can be confident that you're buying something that hasn't been treated so i'm visualizing going to i don't know pick a uh, home depot lowe's they have plants or uh right. one of the yeah. chain, uh, nurseries that that's in your area and you're saying to some fresh out of high school kid who has been shown how to use a hose. Right. Do your plants already have, and I'll let you say it rather than my tripping over my tongue. <laughs> Neo, yeah, neonicotinoid. <laughs> and, and they're going to look at me like, oh, here's another one of these. So how do you know? How do you tell? Uh, yeah. You can't ask, asking, asking yeah. some poor clerk at... Um, so, um, a general box store. So, they're not going to know. Right. No. So one of the one of the good things is that um, a number of the bigger name stores, and I'm not going to say which have which because yes. I, I don't have in front of me which have which policies, and I hate to give the wrong information out. But a number of them have committed. Um, I believe some, ha or I mean, I know some already have stopped selling plants that have been treated with those so you can you know, if you know which particular store you're going to you can probably they um you can probably google that and see that which particular ones. and a lot of the really big ones have either phased that out or committed to phasing that out so that is a really good thing because that the ones that have done so are quite proud you know display that proudly on their website so when you if you look at it and a lot of them will be uh, a number of plants will be labeled pesticide free so that's that's another really good, and that's something that we're at the Indian Nature Plant Society we're trying to work on with the retail industry to encourage them first of all not to not to use this and we're encouraging people to ask about it so that yeah. so that they know there's demand for plants that haven't been treated you know so that you can kind of use your use your voice to encourage that so the more of us who ask for the pesticide free plants yeah. uh, the more right. that will create that on, on the part of the people or the nursery who are providing the nursery stock, the more that will reinforce them for removing the pesticides from the plants. Yeah, absolutely. So yes. it's kind of, you know, we're really trying to influence the supply chain here, uh, you know, as much as we can. So it's good to ask us to kind of keep that pressure up. A lot of the stores will have information about you know, on their websites or if you if you do it at Google or the poor young person serving you might not might not have the information to hand. Um, but especially with you know, and, and certainly with smaller stores where you're dealing maybe with someone who's at a higher level or a manager or someone who's a buyer, um, it's really worth asking. Or an actual nursery. Yes. Yeah. So you're not going to you know a big box store yeah. to buy your plants, but you're going to an actual nursery where people our plant specialists, right. they will know. Right, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and many of, the, and again, many of the native plant societies will have really good information about which stores or which places, yeah. which nurseries local to them have this. I know with the Indian Native Plant Society, we have a by native directory and we have, you know, the, the people who, the businesses that are on there have answered various questions about their sourcing and, you know, make sure they're invasive free and, you know, and will be knowledgeable about these kind of issues and a lot of the native plant societies who will have information about which suppliers or you know local suppliers will be knowledgeable about that but it's something i hadn't really even thought about that the seeds that yeah. you're buying yeah could become sprayed with I insecticide i have in in the fall i gather seed from the garden areas at the barn that's one of the many fall projects is oh, to lovely. go out and, and gather in the seed for the following year yeah. the annuals that i grow out there so it makes me really glad that that i've been doing that for the last chunk of years because yes. at least there i know exactly how absolutely seeds have been, yeah um, 
Absolutely, and many of them. As you know, there are some. There are some wonderful online. You know, there are some. There are some wonderful local um, native plant suppliers, but there are some really good bigger ones, online ones as well. And they all say that they're. You know, will we'll, can guarantee that their seed exactly has been collected and is not um, is not treated. And and also uh, another a wonderful thing about native plants is many of them tend to be quite prolific with their seeding. Uh, and so if you know some, if you have friends or neighbours who have them, it can be a wonderful, you know, sharing with, with other people locally, your friends or neighbours who have them, is that's uh, a wonderful way to get seed and plants that you know. <laughs> a great way to create a real a sense yeah. of community is, you know, the, with the basically yes. the seed bank. I can see this now in terms of developing a real network within your community of you know, I've got a border that's full of echinacea or something. And does anybody need yes, any of the seed? Yeah. And what a great way to get to know your neighbors. It is. It's really fun. And we, again, the Native Plant Societies often have really active groups who will, you know, share and swap because, you know, because they are so prolific often that the Native Plants, you, you know, it's, it's a real pleasure to give them away and it's lovely to re- you know receive them and yes. in fact one of the, there was a wonderful project a wonderful group who applied for a grant from the Indiana Native Plant Society recently and one of their projects was to set up some wonderful native planting but within that have little you know how that you get the little libraries that you like a mailboxes and people put books in them and you can take books out they were little yes, yes little seed libraries so they collect and it's the seeds from the native plants and leave them for people to be able to help themselves oh. to the packets of seeds oh. from uh, the little seed libraries throughout the plantings which sure that was a wonderful <laughs> a wonderful idea yeah so you, yes. can, you can walk through and then yes enjoy the enjoy taking some seeds home with you in, in a kind of <laughs> yeah and doing it guilt-free guilt-free absolutely to, is, anybody, is anybody watching as i as i snip off this yes. seed head and, yeah. and uh, drop it into my pocket you know kind uh, of thing which absolutely. i know plant of course you know the yeah. plant people <laughs> are often guilty of doing but yes. you can do it absolutely guilt-free yes yeah so that's oh, so wonderful yeah yeah and then okay. i can see also then that the sharing back and forth within the community of, you know, look, look what beautiful butterfly yeah. turned up in my garden today. <laughs> it is. Oh. It's very fun. There's a huge amount of them. It's a huge amount of enjoyment that can be shared. <laughs> so. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And in a totally different kind of sharing from that which is produced by the normal suburban lawn. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it is, it's a real joy and a sense of community. And I know there are lots, you know, lots of gardening groups and things who do that. And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful benefit of <laughs> the native plant <Yes>. gardening. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, yeah, <laughs> I know. And I'm sorry that that's a lot. I realize that's a lot, a lot of information to take in. <laughs> about the about all the, the pesticides and things well lots of information is good and of course you know right now we're going into winter so yeah. none of us at least i'm not rushing out to my local nursery to buy things to plant no. at this time of year there's snow in the forecast and yeah. uh, over the next couple of days who knows whether we'll actually get a real snowstorm but this is not the time of the year to be planting but it is the time of the year to be thinking and learning and planning yeah. and looking out and, and deciding, you know, what do, what changes do I want to make? What changes should I be making? You know, yeah. And I think, you know, as we're planning ahead, I think that really identifying, doing a plant survey. And I think that would be something so in terms of this whole constructional approach, there are a lot of plants that are growing in my garden that I don't really know what they are. I haven't really paid that much attention. I haven't needed to know what they are. They're they're, they're there. Right. You know, they're there. And should I be encouraging them, discouraging them? And one of the plants that grows in the grass is a juga. I like a juga, but I, I don't actually know 
I suspect it's non-native. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, yeah. It's very pretty, and when it's blooming, I always mow around it. So I'm encouraging it because I don't mow it down. Yeah. And so that would be one of those questions of should I or shouldn't I? So I think over the winter to be to be learning a little bit more about what actually is growing in the garden. Of course, winter's a hard time to identify what's growing in the garden, but to be thinking about, I need a plant catalog. I need to know actually what is out there to know what is neutral and I can enjoy guilt-free or semi-guilt-free because it's just neutral, but I don't necessarily need to take it out. What is invasive? So I noticed the other day, there's some bittersweet growing along one of the fence lines. Bittersweet, I gather, is an invasive. So it's, again, depending, and it's so hard with the common names. So I need to look it up, and I need to learn whether it's an invasive for this area or not, because I've always right. I've always liked bittersweet, and, right. it was, and it's great in wreaths and so on. It's very pretty yes. at this time of year. I've never seen it just come in. It's, it's not something I've planted. It's something that has come in. So I need to look that up and find out. Yeah. Do I need to encourage it, discourage it? Can I leave it alone and just right. let it do what it's going to do? Or should I be actively discouraging it? So I think one of the early steps and whether, you know, to a certain extent I can do some of that this winter and then some things will have to wait because they're dormant. Right. So yes. it's a little hard to, yes, it's a to, little hard to do plant identification. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah. Yes, at, at this time of year. But, but I would say one of the first steps is to do an inventory. Yeah. And in that inventory, I need to think about, is this a plant that is native, non-native, invasive, neutral, or welcome, you know, ecologically functional way. And you can't take something away without putting something in in its place. I learned that. That's an expression from the horse trainer. And it's an important one. You know, I, in, in the horse training, I use positive reinforcement. That goes against the cultural norm where when a horse does something you don't like, you correct it. Well, in the form of training that that I advocate, we're not using positive punishment. But I can't take that away. I can't say to somebody, oh, you mustn't, you know, you, right. don't hit your horse. Yes. <laughs> um, unless, I, unless I put something in the place of. Right. Because yeah. the reason that that person may be hitting the horse is because they think it will keep themselves or the horse safe yeah and that's an that's important so how can we satisfy that function right without using that technique so in the same way with the with the garden you can't take something away without putting something else in its place yeah i'm looking out right on the, the back garden and I'm looking out at a fence line that has various viney type of plants right. <laughs> uh, growing up it. And if we were to decide that those viney type of plants that are growing up it are invasive and should come out, well, I like having a viney type of plant along that fence line. Yeah. So what would be the native equivalent right. along that fence line? And that would be true for the euonymus that are along the driveway. They provide a visual barrier for me so that I'm not looking at my neighbors. Right. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I like that a lot. Yeah. No, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. So, you know, sometimes the function is those euonymus are serving a function. They are a visual barrier. And I may not be able, I suppose we we decide that, well, actually, they should come out. Right. And there's, there's part of me that's going, <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, but in order to take them out, I would have to say, it's not just, so yes, I, I get the, that we want the function within the natural ecosystem, but I also want the function of, it's a visual barrier. Right. 
So how do I create quickly yeah. a visual barrier? What will serve that function? Yeah. And only do it better from a Absolutely. functional ecosystem perspective. Yeah. It's not just that I want to plant natives, but the plants that I have chosen within the garden serve functions as well. They provide a visual barrier or a sound barrier or shade. Yeah. All of these things are part of why they have been chosen or allowed yeah. to grow. Yes. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, yeah. Allowed. <laughs> you know, you know, but I haven't I haven't chopped them down. You know, I, I think over the winter, some of the things that we can do. So it's like, what can we do? You get really excited. Oh yes, we're going to have we're going to have our own homegrown national park. We're going to be part of the the Talamy National Park System, which is just grand. Yeah. And I want to be part of the Talamy National Park System. But how do I go about it? Well, a good park ranger knows what's growing in his national park. And I don't really know what's growing in my national park. Yeah. So I need to learn more about the species that are currently growing in my national park. And then I need to think about what are the different structural functions that I need yeah. in my national park. The barriers that, that give me visual blocks or that provide shelter and, and forage for the animals that I enjoy watching and so on. There's a, a red squirrel out on the feeder right now. And, you know, so I certainly want to encourage different heights within the trees yeah. so that things like the squirrels will have their little acrobatic runways and shelters because that's important. You know, all of these things are important. And so over the winter, what are some of the things that we can all be doing okay. as we prepare for the spring and and the development of our national parks? That's a really good question. And, and you're right, it's a, it's a wonderful time to be planning, um, to, be, to starting to plan this. So probably some of the best advice, we actually have, have a wonderful team um, in our Landscaping with Native team, a team of landscape designers, ecologists and gardeners. And so what we are doing is we are putting together a kind of a curriculum for, for, for exactly how to do this. And with, we're hoping that with our combined expertise from, you know, ecologists and, and landscape designers that we'll be able to, to talk you through a kind of, we've been doing a digital education series that we'll be rolling out. And some of the key concepts of kind of landscape design and how you can start to visualize your space and, and what you want. So I'm going to interrupt for a second because that's really important because I, I, and I'm thinking not so much for, well, also for the horse farms. But if you're, since this is Horses for Future, and a yeah. lot of people who are listening to this have horses, but many of them will have horses that they board elsewhere, but they live in a suburban house, for example. Right. And you can't just say, well, I'm just not going to cut my grass. Right. No. Because no. your neighbors will not be happy with no. it. <laughs> but if you have a landscaped garden. Yeah. It can look very pleasing and acceptable to the neighborhood at large. And I think that's really important. But we're not talking here about just, you know, throw away your lawnmower no. and let everything get shaggy. No, no. No. So landscape design is part of this. Absolutely. And I think it's that, you know, bridging that disconnect between in gardening and horticulture and landscape design and ecology because they've been very separate um they've you know they've been considered very separately and where we can kind of bring them together and create beautiful functional ecosystems that are you know are enjoyable and pleasing for your neighbors walking past but also able provide the ecosystem function that we that we want them to provide is really important and i that it's something that we've been looking at with our teams. How do we bring that together? How do we bring, you know, the, the landscape design expertise and then the, the yes. you know, the research 
you know, coming out of, you know, coming out of Dr. Chalmers' lab or coming out of, there was a recent, you know, University of Kentucky, a couple of recent studies from them that showed the layout of gardens strongly influenced um, the extent to which milkweed plants were used by monarch butterflies. So it wasn't just a case of having the milkweeds, actually where you placed, how they were placed in the garden influenced how much they were used by the butterflies. And so it's trying to kind of, bring that together, you bring together landscape design and the kind of science and ecology and and bring, you know, get them talking and, and bridging that bridging that gap really. So that's, that's a big focus. So the, the Indiana Energy Plant Society have teamed up with the Indiana Wildlife Federation to do that, to kind of try and get our expertise together and and, um, and look at that. And so we will be releasing a, a series we have a, a, quite a lot on our website already, but we're, we have a, a series of videos, a digital education series that's in production right now. We've got the wonderful team who are working on, on producing some short videos and the kind of short videos, just kind of taking people through the steps of how, how they can do this. Yeah. As a gardener, I know that you can say, well, you know, I'd like to shrink my lawn, yeah. but the grass is going to have something to say about that. Right. <laughs> so that whole, how do I physically? Yeah. You know, what are the steps to going out and changing this green sward yeah. of grass into um, a herbaceous mix? Yeah. It's not just simply, you know, waving a magic no. wand and having the, the transformation. No. There are gardening steps that have to go through to discourage grass. So there's both the, well, what am I going to plant? And then also how... Am I going to go about transforming this space? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, and that, you know, it's a, it's a real thing. You know, how do you physically, though, do you buy seed? Do you buy plug plants? Do you buy big plants? How, you know, how do you prepare the area? How do you, um, you yes. know, and, and I think a lot of the time, often when you're looking at information about native plants, one of the things that we've found is that that information is, is kind of provided on a species by species level, like this species is a host for X and will flower at this time, but they're not often looked at in terms of plant communities or combinations or how they will look together in a yes, in a suburban garden, what plants will flower at the same time and also be ecologically um, valuable, but also you know, require the same conditions. So we'll grow happily together. <laughs> um, right. So one very immediate thing you can do is Kind of look at your area and see what type of area it resembles. Is it a woodland? Is it a wide open, you know, sunny space? Is, are you on a water's edge? You know, and look at the conditions. So even in winter, even though it's hard to, to, to identify the plants, you can still get an idea of what aspect it is. So whether it's facing north or, you know, north or south. Right. Your light conditions, you know, how much sun there is. And the moisture conditions, whether, you know, what kind of, if you're on sandy soil or heavy you know, Indiana, we're on very heavy clay. So you can start, even in this time of year, you can start to to get a bit of an understanding about your area in terms of those very basic kind of, but really important conditions, um, because that will dictate a lot of, will dictate quite strongly which plants you'll be one will survive and thrive in your area. And then, you, like you said, your desired function for your you know, for the area. So do you, are you wanting a, you know, are you wanting a rain garden or a, a screening bio hedge? Or, you know, are you wanting just, just to build the ecological carrying capacity, but you don't really mind what it looks like? Or does it need to be very neat and tidy because it's in your front yard and your neighbours have to walk past you every day? So what's quite a fun thing to do is to, you know, just walk around your area, get an idea of the conditions and the, and start to think about what, what you want the area to to be how you want it to function that can start to focus you on to which plants you'll be able to have um, in terms of which ones will survive there because of your condition yes. um, and then which ones you're going to choose because of the function that you want because you want a, a screening hedge or a, a bigger prairie planting whichever thing may be so those are those are some things that people it can be fun to do to do now even in the depths of winter (laughs) you can can do that and then yes and then starting to look at the actual plant species and which particular plants you put in can be the kind of the next step once you've decided which 
what you want the what you want the whole trip to look like. Yes. So lots lots to plan for for the winter. Yes. Uh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. We want native plants. We want to encourage native plants as much as possible. There may be some spring work in terms of removing, discouraging some yeah. of the current residents. Right, yes. <laughs> we may have to ask yes. some of the current residents to leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that we can bring in, bring back yeah. the, the native plants. Yeah. That seems somewhat rude. I know it does. You've been, you've been here a while, but you have to leave now. <laughs> but actually, this time of year is really is often really good because I know that one of the really invasive that's very prevalent is, is the, the bush honeysuckle, uh, the Asian bush honeysuckle, and there are, there are a number of different species, but they are very prevalent. And what does make it a little easier is they are one of the very first things to green up the very very early spring so it makes them very easy to identify because before anything else has come out and that's one of the things that gives them a competitive advantage and it's one of the reasons why they're so invasive and it is because they are able to to leap out very very early before really before really i think really any of the native shrubs do but at least before most of them do so it makes it easy to identify but it but yes and easy to control because you can do it before anything else has come out but yes it is I know it does feel a bit it's hard to do I I absolutely agree I don't find it easy (laughs) so yeah and and some of them are so pretty yes we have to look up mock orange right see whether which which list it sits on right yeah hopefully it'll sit on it's perfectly okay (laughs) perfect yes perfectly yes that's just, that would be nice. I would hope so because yeah. the, the bees certainly like it. Right. Yeah, most plants are not invasive. There are a lot of introduced plants that are not invasive and are perfectly fine to keep, you know, as long as we can keep the, the majority, you know, over 70% yeah. native. But, but yes, the ones that are on the invasive list, that's, yeah. <laughs> sorry, they have but to go. Having, you know, having, as you say that, it's changing them. Yes. Because... Yeah. I, I have a, a wisteria, again, a very old plant in the front of the garage. Right. And with the climate change, the wisteria is spreading. Yeah. It's, uh, and I am, I am now having to, I'm going to have to really rethink right. uh, whether the wisteria is sits on the allowed list or not because it is spread, it is, it's never spread. Right. No, you're We're ab- too cold for yeah. it. Yeah. You know, we've just been too cold for that. It had to be yeah. you know, nursed along for it to grow. But yeah. Yeah. we're now warm enough that yeah, it may have to be told that no more, no yeah. longer. I know that, that you're, and you're absolutely right. That is changing and will continue to change, sadly, as, as yeah. things, um, as the climate does change. So, yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and that's a, hard, that's a hard thing to, um, yeah. Not always the, the nicest, but it, but if we focus on the on the things that we're going to put into our place, um, the native alternatives, exactly. then that's exactly. a good thing to focus exactly. on. <laughs> so, what would what would be some of the for the the climbing? What would be a, a native equivalent? There are some native honeysuckles, and there are some native. There, I believe there is a native wisteria as well. Um, I don't know about it in your. I don't know where you are in York State. There is in Indiana. Again, in India, there are some native passion flowers, which are wonderful, which actually, and there's one, I think it's, uh, I, I'm trying to think, I think it's Pascaralutia, and I can't just, I think it is, and that actually is host to a, a native bee that will only, that is its only host plant. <laughs> so it's, I, 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 it's one of the, one of the native passion flowers. So there are some, some lovely things like that. Again, for the New York state, I would have to look because you're, you're quite a lot further north than we are. And I don't believe that is native yes. up where you are. Again, we have on the Indiana Native Plant website, and I'm sure they have similar on some of your local native plant websites. We have a whole um, section on native alternatives to, so you can look at what you've got your, you know, you can look at whatever plant you're looking to remove, your yeah. burning bush or your, you know, your bush honeysuckles, you can look at what you're wanting to remove. And we give, um, we do in our, in our, Sarah, who's a member of our team, does a wonderful newsletter every, every month with a focus on an invasive and 
a whole list of unnatable alternatives every month and then we've got them all up on the website so you can search you can search for you know one that will be pretty similar in terms of habit and conditions and um, and that kind of thing which is which is really nice to be able to do because yes as you say you don't want to take it away without something to to replace yeah to put in its place there are usually very similar in terms of habit or size or season of interest there are ones that will be very comparable but not invasive yeah of course there are because i I cannot believe that this beautiful landscape that i live in is somehow inferior to the landscapes from which we have drawn the exotics no no absolutely not and yeah and it's interesting you know i'm i'm at the moment in the uk where where i'm originally from and and we find all the, you know all the lovely things that are native to North America. We think are very exotic and want them here. <laughs> yes, oh, I know. <laughs> I know. I've been over in the UK and gone through the nurseries, and you'll see the pots yes, of goldenrod yes. for sale. And you think goldenrod? Ridiculous! And yet yes. there they are. Or you know, and, and then you go to the, the the great gardens and you walk through where where they they have the trees from right. North America yeah. growing and all the different species of trees and these are these are the exotica and yeah so it, it's it's just like the right. horses i get such a kick out of when i have been over in germany that very often the horses in the clinics will be quarter horses right. <laughs> yeah. wait wait a minute right. in germany they should be warm bloods, but no, the warm bloods get put on airplanes and flown across to North America, and then they put the quarter horses on the airplanes to, for the return yeah. trip, and, and that they're greatly valued and, and yeah. so on. But in our gardens, we want that which is exotic and yeah. different, and you know, and as a gardener, you know, oh, I've grown this this plant that is so hard to grow here, that's out of its yeah. climate, so yeah. you know, all the rest of that, that that's in part of the fun of, of being a gardener is growing things that are exotic or hard to find. But now it's a different yes, kind of fun. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's it's an entirely different kind of fun. And and finding the, the native species and bringing them back into the garden is a completely yeah. different type of, of yeah. experience. And, and one that has, I think, many more benefits. Yeah because of all of all the rest of the residents that come along with those native plants absolutely yes yes <laughs> i love i love that way of looking at it <laughs> yeah yeah and and so clearly what we also have to be thinking about is we're designing you know the the garden for over the winter is where what are all of the nest boxes and places where you can just sit and watch the you know because there's going to be a lot yes. more to see yeah absolutely and that's yes I and mean, for me that's the biggest enjoyment and highlight of it so yes you're absolutely right <laughs> it's, it's that's a that's a lovely thing to be planning at this time of year <laughs> yes and presumably if we get it right and we are doing things like leaving our yeah. the leaves and encouraging the native plants that and and letting them grow so that they can grow deep roots into the ground that we are also then really encouraging things like the mycorrhizal fungi and that along with that we will then be sequestering more carbon and that is all a huge part of this what we need to be doing to help with the climate change so you know that that in this healthy ecosystem that we are developing in our homegrown national park, that not only will I see more biodiversity in terms of what I'm able to observe, the birds, the insects, but there will be an astoundingly huge biodiversity below ground, that which I'm not seeing, and that that is critically important in terms of carbon capture. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And it's, you know, we, we've been so, you know, a lot of the focus is on, has been on, you know, which plants will provide for caterpillars and, you know, butterflies and, and, and that 
kind of easy to measure and see, but there does tend to be you know, a big yes. correlation between that and and the other you know, ecosystem services that we can't, we, we, it's not so easy to measure, not so easy to see, but are absolutely vitally important. Yes, no, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's a huge, a huge benefit and so, so important. Right and it's now. something that, that, you know, ecosystem services, I think that's a great phrase. And some of those services are of direct benefit right. to me, you know, selfishly. Yeah. <laughs> some of those services become more important when you are living in some of the ecosystems that are a little more fragile. Right. So yeah. upstate New York, it's I would say it's not in terms of being able to absorb humans, it's a, a fairly resilient environment. Right. But when you get into some of the areas for example, out in California, where they had those horrific fires, yeah. and some of the areas in the Midwest where drought becomes more significant, those ecological services become really important because some of those ecological services include that, that the soil is permeable and the water can penetrate into the soil instead of running right. off. So it's what are, what are the plants that we want to be growing that will really help with some of those services yeah. that are really of direct, absolute direct benefit to the people living on the, that land. And what do you grow in uh, those areas that are prone to fire so that you're not creating a problem for right. yourself? And how do you manage? You know, that's one of the, the big questions that I have in terms of the meadows on the property at the barn of how do we manage those meadows we want to keep them open so we don't want to just leave them right where they'll get gradually overgrown with shrubs and we'll lose the open space but if we mow them when do we mow right. them you know there are all of those questions it's not simply what do we grow, but how do you manage right. it? So I've planted an oak tree, but I'm raking the leaves up every fall and putting them out for the town to collect. That's not ideal. But if, if I can leave those leaves under the yeah. tree, that's much better. And then that helps to shrink my lawn. Yeah. <laughs> because now I, I have that area under the tree that becomes a space that is getting mulched every year by the, by the oak leaves. So I'm on my clay soil, my soil is becoming easier to work because it now has that organic matter yeah. in it. And those leaves have the, all the fungi are, are an important part of it. And the leaves also provide the kinds of environment in which the insect larvae can be protected. And then it's a great area in which I could grow native ferns and yeah other things of that yeah. sort. And I want to think about what are some of the ecological services that the shift in thinking is going to provide. So I'm going to have less runoff from my land because of the way that I'm planting and managing. So it's not just what I'm planting, but how I'm managing them. I'll have windbreaks if I'm in, in an area where you know, I don't want to have the soil exposed and, you know, like the great, you know, dust bowl yeah. uh, era type of, of issues. So I've got windbreaks, I've got wildlife habitat. What are all the services that I can provide, whether I'm talking about a postage yeah. stamp yeah. of a patio, the typical sort of size of a suburban type of lawn, or the more expansive right. horse farm? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And and what's exciting is that, you know, unlike some of these other things where you know, I, I can't have a direct influence, I can have an yeah. absolute direct impact. Yeah. And that's what's exciting about it. It is. It's really it's really exciting. And it you know, you can have a direct impact and a really you know, a 
an immediate impact. Yeah, <laughs> it's very reinforcing in that way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. It's, it's something you can be in control of and enjoy while you're having it, a, an impact too. <laughs> so. Yes, and it should last yeah. because you know if, when you're planting exotics, you you really do have to tend them and keep replacing yeah. them. You know, they die out in the winter, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But when you're planting natives, yeah. they, they know how to sort of survive. They do. It's, and that's, that's one of the great joys of them. Like every year it gets it gets better and better every year. <laughs> you can, it, you know, you yeah. can, if the first year it can, you, know, you can plant it and it's, it, the loss can be very beautiful the first year, but each year it it becomes more and more mature and looks better. And yeah, it, it's a, it's a great joy and and then these these other benefits like being able to share share those um share the plants and the seeds with friends and neighbors. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. When you do walk out into natural habitats, yeah. you think how beautiful they are, and now we get to have truly have a piece of that. Yes, in our own. Backyard. Absolutely. Backyard. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> no, it is. It's a great thing, and it's going to. I think it will be a fun, a, a very fun journey to to do this, and you know, and to be able to share experiences and pictures. So, so what I want to do now, because we're going into the winter, right. is you know, to to begin to think about those things that we can do going into the winter, all the planning. And then to really go after some of the low-hanging fruit. Okay, yeah. You know, those things that are doable, easy to do, those first approximations in. Okay. You know, that those first approximations in where you can feel as though you've done something that you have been successful. Right. And maybe it's simply planting a, a little herbaceous border along the edge of a driveway what kinds of plants would you put in right. there and some of the other low-hanging fruit and we can talk about this sort of break this up so that it's not all one big yeah. chunk of information but yeah I, th I think in the next one the next time we get together we'll pick another low-hanging fruit and talk about what we can do right one of the areas where I think people can make an immediate difference, especially during the growing season, is in outdoor lighting. Yes, absolutely. Yes, so just yeah, the changing your bulbs to the yellow LEDs or putting motion sensors on or things like that, which yes, you can do during the winter. And you're right; that will have such an enormous impact from one small action. So yes, yes, it's, it's, yes. yes it's absolutely very immediate thing that can be done if enough of us did that that i i've forgotten the figures but i know that the numbers of insects that could be saved from that were, were, were astronomical figures <laughs> and we're we're talking together right before christmas and i dare say that by the time we get to this piece of this conversation it'll be after right. christmas you know and i don't want to be that grinch that say you must take down all your christmas oh. lights no christmas <laughs> lights no 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 it's terrible yeah. it's terrible because that's not no. what we're talking no. about but certainly during the the time of the year when the insects are active that rethinking our outdoor lighting yeah. is a really important thing that we can do and it's again it, it's the low-hanging fruit yeah. it's something we can go after yeah. But it's actually a big subject, yeah. so let's leave okay. that and come back to okay. it. We'll leave that as a tease, okay. <laughs> and next time we can we can talk about why lighting makes okay. a difference yes. and what we can do about it. Yeah, that's 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 a wonderful idea. That that would be um, that would be a fun a fun thing to focus on, and and yeah, something we can do at this time of year when maybe the ground's frozen and we can't actually go out and plant anything <laughs> in some parts of the country <laughs> that's right that's right and we can get our lighting changed yes, so that yeah. when we're having that spring race when everything is erupting out of the yes. ground the faster you run the further behind you feel yes. sort of like alice in the looking grass that's one project that you don't have to worry about because it's all right done. exactly no, that's a great idea i love no. that <laughs> that's a wonderful good. idea good good yes. good well, thank you so why don't we leave this for now? We'll let, this is a lot for people to be thinking about. Yeah. We're going to keep exploring these 
layers. We're going to keep, you know, literally digging down and digging down to become more specific about what can be done. And, you know, we can use my garden as a model. We can talk to other people in different parts of the country who are exploring this idea of planting with natives. And we'll just create a network of Dr. Talamy's homegrown national parks, which would be lovely. That would be very exciting. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you you for listening. If you want to learn more about Dr. Talamy's work, be sure to visit his website, homegrownnationalparks.com. My plan for this series is I'm going to continue to tap into Coralie's expertise and wonderful willingness to share. And I'm also going to visit with some of my training friends who are interested in creating their own homegrown national parks. Some of them are way ahead of me in this process, so I'm looking forward to learning from them. And some of them are just getting started. So together, we'll figure out what questions we should be asking. The fun of this for me is I'm not the expert. I'm learning right along with all of you. So this is truly a voyage of discovery. We're sailing a ship that's being blown by, oh, some wonderful winds. It's, it's that understanding that horse people can make a positive difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're going to be learning how. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope it is a healthy year. I hope the vaccines bring the coronavirus under control and the political turmoil settles out so we can put our energy truly towards solving the climate change crisis. Just one more quick note before I sign off. I do like to keep this Horses for Future podcast a little separate from the Equiosity podcast. The Equiosity podcast, I'm wearing my horse training hat. And for this one, I'm wearing more of my political hat, as it were. So I, I do try and keep them a little separate. But for those of you who are interested in the horse training and clicker training and the work that I do, I've just posted my clinic schedule for this year. So if you're interested in working with me and learning more about the positive reinforcement training that I do, do check that out on my website, theclickercenter.com. Just look under the events section and you'll see all the information about the virtual clinics. They're wonderful fun. They're a great learning experience. You get to work with your own horse in your home environment. There's no travel. So our carbon footprint is very minimal, and it's just a great, great learning opportunity. So do please check that out if you're interested. And now I will say thank you for listening, and Happy New Year.